0: Turn with me, Exodus chapter 38. I'm not going to read all 31 verses. Uh, we've been kind of going through this uh, as these chapters are quite long. And they're repetitive as to things that we covered in earlier chapters, but I'm going to read just a few things that I believe are important for us to kind of pull out, and then we'll look at the chapter as a whole. Starting with verse one, he made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its width. It was square and its height was three cubits. He made its horns of its four corners. The horns were of one piece with it and overlaid with bronze. Now verse 3, he made the utensils for the altar, the pans, the shovels, the basins, the forks, the fire pans. They were of bronze. Drop down to uh, verse 8. He made the laver of bronze and the base of bronze, for the bronze, uh, from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So we have the brazen altar and we have the brazen laver, uh, which was filled with water. So those two uh, articles, both made of bronze. Then we have the making of the court, starting in verse 9, that he made the court on the south side, the hangings of the court, of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long. There were 20 pillars for them, with the 20 bronze sockets and the hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. On the north side, the hangings were of one hundred cubits and twenty pillars and their uh, twenty bronze sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. Drop down to verse eighteen. The screen for the gate of the court was woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Very important colors. We'll come back to that. And of fine woven linen, the length was twenty cubits. We'll stop there. Uh, drop down to verse twenty-one. This is the inventory of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, which was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest, Bezalel, the son of Uri and the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Uh, Drop down to verse 24. All the gold that was used in all the work of the holy place That is, the goal of the offering was 29 talents, 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and all the silver, whose number of the congregation was 100 talents. I'm not going to go through all the weight of all these things, but we'll stop there. It goes down through the weight of the bronze and each of the the elements and how much they weighed and how much was collected from the offerings of the people. If you take a look at the tabernacle, You'll have to envision it with me. Remember that the shape of the tabernacle is a rectangle. And on the east end is where you would enter in. Make sense? So you've got this rectangle, and this is the east end. It would face the rising of the sun. The sun rises in the east. You would enter into the east end of the tabernacle, and then you would have in, as soon as you walk in, you're in the outer court. Uh, Inside the outer court you have the big bronze laver, uh, but you also, the very first thing you would actually see is the large bronze altar. And so both of them are right there in the outer court. You'd have to go through the outer court, then into the holy place, which only the priest could go into the holy place. Uh, The people could not go into the holy place. And of course, the high priest could only go into the holy of holies. And he could even only go in there one time per year. That was on the Day of Atonement. So you have these Uh, sections if you will as you walk in and you walk into the east and you're facing uh, you're walking into the east and you're facing west and you walk in now there's the big outer court there with the huge altar of bronze uh, which there would be daily sacrifices and the smoke would always be a perpetual fire going up from the altar you have the big uh, bronze laver with the water and we'll talk about Uh, what the water was used for. Uh, But you're in the wilderness. Uh, This is not, uh, the ground that you're walking on is not carpeted like this. It would just be dusty, dirt, very probably hard and compact. Of course, they would sweep it and things like that, but nevertheless, it is a dirt earthen floor. Uh, A lot of things that God, remember some of the altars, God instructed they couldn't even carved the stones he wanted them to be earthen altars it was it was god's way of saying that all the earth is mine and i place my tabernacle upon the earth but you would come in through the east and you certainly would have dust on your feet and you've got the the view there now there's many different types and views of the tabernacle the tabernacle is the forerunner it is the foreshadowing of what the temple, the temple Solomon would build, the temple would follow the same. The entrance to the temple would be through the east. It would face the same way. Uh, You would enter the temple, there would be an east entrance of the temple, and then of course the temple would face the same direction as the tabernacle. Courtyard, then holy place, then holy of holies. So the tabernacle came first in the wilderness, but later David would desire to build the temple. The Lord would not allow him to build the temple. Solomon would build the temple, and it would follow the same pattern. It wouldn't be the exact same size, but it would be uh, similar in the sense that you have the outer court, the holy place, then the Holy of Holies, which the veil was there. Now later, when Jesus would die on the cross, what would happen to the veil? It would be torn, and not just the high priest would have entryway to the Holy of Holies, but you and I through the blood of Christ, have entrance to the Holy holy. So the Lord was laying down these views and these types which would not come until the full revelation of Jesus Christ, what it all meant. They knew what some of it meant, but they didn't understand what it all meant until Jesus himself becomes the fulfillment. Uh, the, te- the temple itself, uh, if you kind of lay the temple out, it almost looks like a human body, and it's like the body of Jesus, the head up there where the Holy of Holies is, all the way down to the feet. Where would the feet be in the tabernacle? Where all the dust is, right? The, uh, there's no, the, um, the outer court is where it's dusty. That's where the feet would be. The entrance is where the feet enter. And you also have a picture, as I look at it, it very much typifies the life and ministry of Jesus. He comes down out of heaven and he enters in through what? Through what? He's born in this rugged little stable. He enters into the world and most of his life and ministry is we see walking the dusty trails if you will of up and down the hills of Galilee and through Jerusalem and he himself points he reveals what the Old Testament was saying many times, going over people's heads, speaking in parables, although He would sometimes explain in detail what He meant to the disciples. Even still they would not understand when He said He was going to Calvary to be the sacrifice. And you have the brazen altar right there that had the daily sacrifice. Jesus talked continually about the fact that He Himself would be the sacrifice. But He also, uh, we see that He was baptized in the Jordan. And we see the uh, the fact that uh, first came water, but Jesus said later would come the baptism by fire. We have the water and the laver there. Later Jesus would enter in on the cross He would actually take the role of high priest, tearing, as I mentioned uh, the, uh, the veil of the temple would be torn in two. He would usher all the way in and carry out everything that took place in the tabernacle. He would be the priest, He would be the sacrifice, but he would also give everyone access to the Holy of Holies. So in other words, if you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, it's as if he walks through the tabernacle in his life and ascends back to the tabernacle where, with his Father. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you would be also. Someday you and I will not just think about what the tabernacle must have looked like we'll see the real full glorious tabernacle of God himself and there won't be any dusty outer court either. All these are a shadow of things to come. One Sunday morning there was a pastor he noticed a little boy named Alex who was staring up at a large plaque that hung in the foyer of the church, and the plaque was covered with names, and small small American flags were mounted on either side of the plaque. The seven-year-old had been staring at the plaque for some time, so the pastor walked up and stood beside the boy and said quietly, Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Pastor, replied the young man, still focused on the plaque. Pastor McGee, what is this? Well, son, it's a memorial to all the men and women who died in the service. Soberly, they stood together, staring at the large plaque. Little Alex's voice was barely audible when he asked, which service, the 9 a.m. or the 11 (laughs) a.m.? Now, perhaps this young boy thought the people died of boredom in church, in the service. Uh, And they didn't get to color pictures and draw while, uh, while they had to listen to Pastor McGee speak. Or maybe he thought that they they had all done something really bad and God judged them for it. Now he was obviously confused about people dying in the service or in service. But many adults are just as confused about the purpose and the ministry of the church. Completely confused about the purpose and the ministry of the church. They've not received teaching from the Lord or or they've rejected it, or they've just not been discipled. Many different reasons, but they're not not really clear on the purpose of the church. Now when you think about the tabernacle, which preceded the church, Jesus established the church with His coming, and more specifically with His departure, established the church. The tabernacle was designed by God. It was brought down to the people, by the hand and the instruction of Moses. God gave it to Moses, and Moses comes down the mountain with both the design of the tabernacle, the instructions for the tabernacle, and then it was constructed in the wilderness to be a representation of God's heavenly dwelling in their midst. So it was constructed that it would be this dwelling place for the Lord. But it wouldn't just be a representation of God's dwelling place it would actually be God's dwelling place. Literally, God would dwell among them. The Hebrew word for tabernacle is mishkan. Well, that elicited uh, some sort of noise. Uh, Mishkan, and immediately sirens start to sound. God with emphasis. You can use the, the normal things of the world, but it means dwelling place. Mishkan means dwelling place. God would tabernacle or dwell among them, but they would be required, the people, God would dwell among them, but they would be required to serve Him and obey His commandments, not based on their own preference of how they wanted to live, but how God said, this is how you will live. Remember, He had, he had taken them out of bondage, out of slavery. How many of you would like to stay slaves forever in Egypt? Nobody would. If somebody offered you the opportunity to say, hey, i got a great deal for you. How would you like to be a slave forever, at least till you die? Nobody would take that. Nobody would say, no, I'm not real. I don't want to be a slave. I thought we tried to get rid of slavery. Well, God did the same. Children of Israel, I'll take you out of slavery. You, you will come with me, worship me, and I will tabernacle among you. But you must follow my commandments. How many had a dad that said, if you're going to live in this house, these are the rules? Right. If you're going to live in this house, these are the rules. God says, if you're going to be in my house, these are the rules. You'll have all the love. You'll have all of my protection. You'll have, I'll go before you. Remember we've talked, God will be the rear guard. I'll go before you. I'll fight your battles. Who would rather have God fight your battles than you fight your battles? So God says, here's the deal. It's a can't-lose situation. I will dwell among you, fire by night, cloud by day, Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies. I will receive and atone your sins at the mercy seat when Moses and Aaron serve me. And so all of these things I will do, what I promise, but I'm simply saying to you, you must follow my instructions. In the same manner, Jesus... Whose name is also Emmanuel. That's one of his names, right? He would be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Very exact same principle as tabernacle. Emmanuel, tabernacle, same thing in the sense that God dwells among us, God is with us. He came down from heaven. Remember, Moses comes down from the mountain. Jesus comes down from heaven to tabernacle with us, and he brought with him the blueprint and the design for the church, just like Moses comes down with the blueprint and the design for the tabernacle. So Jesus comes down, He has the blueprint, the de- design for the church. He says in Matthew sixteen eighteen, "...on this rock," meaning Himself, "...I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it." So He says, "...the blueprint I set up cannot be destroyed." even if it's some tiny little church of believers in Africa, some tiny little group of believers in Muslim-dominated Indonesia, some tiny little group of believers in China and house churches that no one knows about, pastors say deep in a prison, God says, his church, once the blueprint is set, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, cannot be destroyed, period. The church that Jesus would set up would reflect and represent what? It would reflect and represent His redemption. That's what it would represent. The same way Israel, they had been redeemed from Egypt and they would be forever a testimony to the world of the redemption of God, the mercy of God. Of course, the mercy seat is central in the whole tabernacle. All of these things, the Israel would represent them. Redemption, the church would represent the same redemption. Now the church does not replace Israel at all. israel still there's still things yet to be fulfilled. We understand that israel still God is actually Israel's on a bit of a timeout, but we know that much is coming that God is going to do. Ezekiel chapter 37 Ezekiel chapter 38 Israel will still and want at some point all of the church age and all of what God had started with Israel has gone into a pause. There's still the time of Jacob's trouble. God will bring it all together, right? And so right now, the church is made up of both Jew and Gentile, but God's still going to do a work through His Jewish nation, beloved Israel. That, that remains, but at, this, but at the same time, God, through His Son Jesus Christ, sets up the church that it exhibits again the same kind of representation that we as the church both Jew and Gentile in the church, that we would represent His redemption, the redemption of Christ in the world. And that the church, much like Israel was told to do, the church would walk in obedience to Christ. Israel was to walk in obedience. They were to be faithful in the things of the Lord. And that the world would clearly see in the church that Christ dwells in the church and we dwell in Christ. That God would see that The God of Israel dwells in Israel, and Israel dwells in the bosom of the God of Israel. Again, Jesus prayed that. Remember that they would be one, and they would be in you, Father. That we would be together, all of us one, as I was with you, and that the world would be able to see this. Look at at the 21st verse here in Exodus 38. This is the inventory of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, You and I understand whenever we say, hey, share your testimony, share your witness. The tabernacle itself was a witness to the world. The church is of itself. When the church is pure, when the bride is pure, it is a witness to the world. If the bride is not pure, it's not a good witness to the world, is it? The purpose of the church is to represent the Lord. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, A Righteous representation, a righteous representation. We'll look at three things this morning, the freshness, the framework, and the faithfulness. The freshness, the framework, and the faithfulness. Now again, understanding that we would would represent Christ, the church would represent Christ, that we would be a representation of His righteousness, In 1 John 4, 17, it says, because as He is, so are we in this world. Because as He is, remember, He's the perfect standard, but we reflect or we represent, so are we in this world. Uh, It's well said, the only Bible that some people ever see is your life and my life, true? That can be incredible blessing or really indicting, can't it? If the all, you know, because a lot of people love to say this, I'd go to church, but there's too many hypocrites in the church. And a lot of times they're right. Now, in a sense, they're always right because all of us are imperfect. And if you're if you are not imperfect, you can leave at any time. But the fact is, we're all imperfect. So in that sense, that's true. Say so yes, and there's room for one more. There's always imperfections in all of us, but but. That doesn't mean that God's people aren't faithful and redeemed, and they haven't been completely transformed and born again, because those of us that have been made anew were nothing like you say, you think I'm hypocritical now, you should have seen me twenty years ago. God's done a lot in me. You would have really not liked me back then. Now you may not like me because of uh, you know, maybe the things that I say make you feel uncomfortable, but those aren't my words, those are Jesus' words. So we are in the world as Him. 1 Corinthians 3.17 says, For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Say, I don't feel like a holy temple. Individually or collectively. Well, that's good in the sense that uh, we would be humble enough to recognize that uh, that we still uh, are not in any way measuring up to the standard of the Lord, but at the same time Our holiness is not because of what we've done. Our righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, which actually takes a bunch of imperfect, flawed people, covered by the blood of Jesus, brought to the mercy seat and says, now you will represent me. And the Holy Spirit speaks through a life that is really yielded. So that that temple word there in 1 Corinthians 3.17, you'll sometimes hear people refer to that as individually. My body is a temple. You ever heard people say that? My body is a temple. Now, It's okay to use it that way. We understand the principle of duality in Scripture that multiple verses mean multiple things at the very same time. And again, for those of you visiting, I use this illustration all the time. I'm a husband, father, son, brother, pastor, you know, all simultaneously, those terms are true. But the greatest essence of that verse if you understand what paul's speaking of in 1 corinthians 3 he's speaking to a body of believers and he's saying that the body of christ is a temple or is the temple on the earth so instead of a physical temple which was destroyed in 70 a.d in israel you and i jew and gentile all together make up a spiritual temple where the high priest is jesus christ You and I become the temple of the Lord. This is what Paul is speaking of in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that we are the temple to represent the Lord. And again, and when the rapture of Christ takes place and God brings Israel back to the forefront, Israel will retake the stage as representing the Lord. The temple will be rebuilt all of these things, 144,000 Jewish evangelists will go and preach that Jesus really is Yeshua, is the Messiah. Isn't that really cool to think about? That God is not done with the original work that He began in the wilderness. You and I are part of the work, but we're not even, we're not even the full manifestation of the work. God will even raise up, even in the most evil Antichrist time, He will revive the work of the tabernacle slash temple, and He really will raise up godly men to preach the gospel i don't have time to get into all that but at least again i want you to understand that these things all converge but what about for us how how are we to be a righteous representation you might look at this chapter 38 and say i don't see where the church i I, i'm following you a little bit tim i think i understand what the lord is saying here but what is that what is it telling us as the church turn with me real quick to hebrews chapter 3 hebrews chapter 3 again uh, don't take my word for it, take the Scripture's word for it, that what takes place at the tabernacle, what God begins to set forth as the model, is a foreshadowing of our discipleship and ultimately the testimony that we are asked to be by the Lord. The same way the children of Israel were commanded to obey and be faithful in the Lord, we, new in Christ, are commanded to be faithful to the Lord as well. So look at Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Notice how the writer of Hebrews takes the New Testament church and the Old Testament tabernacle slash people of God under Moses, and you see the two of them laid side by side. Hebrews chapter 3, starting verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle... And high priest of our confession, Jesus, or Christ Jesus. Jesus here called the apostle. The apostle. And high priest, high priest, where's that from? From Well, that goes all the way back to Aaron, the high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him who appointed him. And Moses, who was also faithful in his house, the house of the Lord that was built there in the wilderness, Also speaking of the people, again, principal duality, the people of Israel were the house of the Lord, but the tabernacle was the house of the Lord as well. Later the temple would become the house of the Lord, but under Moses there was no temple, there was only the tabernacle. And then the people and the tabernacle, again, both the house of the Lord. Verse 3, for this one, capital one, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Of course he is. Before Moses was, Jesus is. Inasmuch as much as he built the house, he who built the house has more honor than the house. God is more honorable than the tabernacle. He's more honorable than the church. He's more honorable than the temple. He's above it all. Verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but he who built the house, or he who built all things is God. Look at verse 5. This is this, is, this right representation. And Moses indeed was faithful In all his house as a servant for a testimony. Why? Because if we're not faithful, we have no testimony. Moses must be faithful in his testimony. The children of Israel must be faithful. They must follow the instructions of the Lord of those things which would be spoken afterward. Final verse, verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. See it? We're now the tabernacle. We're now the temple, whose house we are. So if we hold fast the confidence, and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. You can turn back to Exodus 38. Let's take a look at this freshness that the Lord uh, has put on my heart. The holistic picture of the tabernacle, if you take a look, try and look at the whole of the tabernacle. All four corners, right? Everything inside, holy place, holy holies, courtyard, you take a holistic you're looking at a top down view of the tabernacle, the holistic view of the tabernacle, it represents God's mercy. They were remember Pharaoh was not going to let them go. Pharaoh wanted to hold on to them like slaves, beat them down, cause them to work till some of them literally died working. God says, "No, no I am the opposite. I'm not a dictator, I'm a father, a gracious father, a heavenly father. The opposite of evil Pharaoh is the graciousness of God. You will, but as your father, you will then follow my instructions. I give you, build this out, I'll dwell among you. But I'll dwell among you in mercy because no one can really approach the perfection and presence of God because we all are tainted with sin. So therefore, God says, I'll dwell among you, but I'll dwell over the mercy seat. He doesn't dwell over the brazen altar. He doesn't bre- dwell over the bronze labor. He dwells in the Holy of Holies. But you can come into the tabernacle, into the courtyard, come into my house by mercy, through mercy. Psalm one nineteen one fifty six says, Great are your tender mercies, O Lord, revive me according to your judgments, revive me. How many of us, we talk, we pray for revival. But I don't know if you really take the time to ponder, what does revival mean? Um, I planted a plant that uh, I, I, I bought one of those little, you know those little trellis things, they are about they kind of fan out and you, you stick, stick them in, the, in a flower bed. And I bought this one plant that I planted down, the guy says if you plant it and you keep it watered, it will grow up on the vines, and it'll kind of spread out, and it'll start to... It'll, it'll grab hold of nearly every part of the trellis, and it'll fill the whole thing out, and then these beautiful orange flowers will pop out. So I did that, and then I went out of town for a week and forgot to leave the sprinkler system on. It, w- it looked dead as a doornail. But, you know, I don't like to... I said, Lord, I need your... I, I don't want this plant to die. I paid 20 bucks for it. I hope I can revive it. So I'm just, I just—I start watering it by hand before it, and within a couple of days, guess what? The whole thing came back. It was revived. You and I sometimes are spirits like that, isn't it? It feels dry, dusty, problematic, depressed, all these things. But the nation itself, even beyond that, this is what, in, in, in Ezekiel, when the dry bones come back to life, our nation, again, there's, there's death, there's destruction, revival. New life needs to be given. Or it won't bloom. It will completely die. So the plant was actually not completely dead. Sometimes we've, we drift away, and we need to be revived. And so that what gets us back to the place of being refreshed by the Lord? His tender mercies. You wouldn't even care to be refreshed if God didn't put on your heart to care to be refreshed. Make sense? You would not, it's not in us. God speaks to us and through His mercy causes us, He draws us back. He draws us back to the east entrance, right? Back to re-enter. You no, know, the east entrance, you didn't have, to, you could, I don't want to go. I don't want to go in there. I don't want to be refreshed. I don't want to be revived. If you're with us on our Wednesday night study, we're in Romans chapter 12, and I'll just remind you again of verse 2, but be transformed by the renewing, revival, renewal that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Lord desires to revive us, to renew us, both in Old Testament and the New Testament. People in the New Testament need to be revived and renewed. People in the Old Testament needed to be revived and renewed. This never changes. We need God to refresh us. Unless the freshness of the Holy Spirit is flowing from our life, think about this. Unless the freshness of the Holy Spirit is flowing from our life, we can't be a testimony to people. You can't tell people, boy, you should know the peace of God. And then Well, how do you? Well, I don't have any peace, but if I did, I would tell you about it. You should know the joy of the Lord. Well, I don't have any joy, but for I know Christians who do, and I'll I'll take you to them. We need to be ourselves revived. We have a freshness of our own walk, not somebody else's walk. God doesn't have stepchildren; He refreshes each and every one of His children individually. Now when you think about the elements uh, of the outer courtyard, the children of Israel, they needed these elements. They were not only, uh, more than anything else, they were reminders of God speaking to them at the heart level. In other words, um, the altar itself, the brazen altar, killing and sacrificing an animal on the altar was not enough to truly satisfy anyone's sin. There had to be genuine sorrow and repentance on the heart of the person giving the sacrifice. The same is true when you come to Christ. You can't just say a prayer. If someone says, hey, all you got to do is say this prayer, you can go back out and do whatever you want. Okay, what is it? You ask the Lord in your heart, say this, but say this, say this, say this, this. Good, you're done. Alright, move on. Billy Graham, thanks for the message on November 13th. I said the prayer, I'm good to go. The sacrifice of Jesus as took, took place 2,000 years ago, that's done. But the blood sacrifice has to be it has to be confessed with the mouth and believe in thine heart. A lot of people have the mouth part right, the heart part right. So they might we come to the high priest and say, here's my lamb, sacrifice on behalf of my family. The priest would still do the work. Go ahead and sacrifice. But that doesn't mean that the people's heart was where it needed to be. So it has to be more than that. But the courtyard elements, not only did they need the elements, but they also represent the elements. I know that's kind of, uh, both the elements that they need is something they represent at the same time. Now think about it. The children of Israel, the elements in the outer court are not the same as those on the in, uh, on, on the, in the Holy of Holies and in the holy, as holy of Hol, in the holy Place and the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy Place you have things overlaid with pure gold. But the brazen altar and the laver, they're made of bronze. It's not the precious metal that gold is, is it? But it's a lot more functional, isn't it? Try and and make certain instruments with gold. Gold gold is actually a little softer, and it's not really uh, good for some of those things. And you see that um, the children of Israel themselves, here they are in a desert their skin constantly bronzed by the sun. Just like the dust would constantly be, the Holy of Holies is covered. It, it doesn't get the dust inside there. It's, co- it's completely covered. It, it's kept away from the harsh elements. But you and I, and like the children of Israel, we're not kept from the harsh elements. They hit us, don't they? We're bronzed and chafed by the wind and the sun. All those things were sitting out there. So the very things that they need to remind them of the sacrifice and the cleansing water and the labor they also themselves represent those things that they too are very much vessels for service you and i haven't been called we've been called to be vessels of service right now when we get to heaven and we're fully glorified even then we'll still be vessels of service we'll serve the lord for the rest of our life but we will be made like christ but at this point Again, just like the bronze elements, God wants us to be useful in daily service. We're not beautiful gold and silver, are we? No, we're acacia wood, (laughs) overlaid with bronze. And we do experience all the outer elements. Uh, If you look at the uh, brazen altar there, it was usable for enduring fire, ashes, the blood of the animals, dirty hands in the laver the laver held the water and the priest by the way the only the priest could use the laver the the people could not the priest would come and and wash in the laver they'd also wash the entrails the animals all kinds of things that the priest would use now under christ you and i become kings and priests and we have access to the cleansing water don't we arthur pink he was born in eighteen eighty-six. This is his description here of the brazen altar. He said, the brazen altar, which we now are to contemplate, was the biggest of the tabernacle's seven pieces of furniture. It was almost large enough to hold all the other vessels. Did you know that? The brazen altar was large enough almost to hold all the other vessels in the tabernacle. Um, Its size indicated its importance. It was placed before the door, just inside the outer court. In other words, as soon as you come in... The east entrance, boom, there's the big brazen altar. Uh, It would be the first object to meet the eye of the worshiper as he entered the tent of the congregation. It is designed to be the brazen altar, to distinguish it from the golden altar inside the holy place. It was also called the altar of burnt offering. The the brazen altar was the basis of the Levitical system. To it, the sinner would come uh, with his divinely appointed victim, that being a sacrifice there was a fire continually burning on it and the daily sacrifice was renewed each morning there it stood ever smoking ever bloodstained ever open to any guilty hebrew who might wish to approach it you and i are ever bloodstained by the blood of jesus we're we're, we're brazen we're burnished by the sun we're all the dust, all the things, and yet God puts the blood on us. So we see two pictures at the same time. They're almost mirrors of each other. On the one hand, you and I need the sacrifice, and then we also become covered by the blood sacrifice. We would walk in, the first thing you see is that huge altar reminding them that the permanent issue with us is sin, isn't it? It's always in front of us. God must deal with the sin. Now, it's not to say that God wanted to bum them out and constantly remind them that you people will never make it because of your sin. It was to say constantly, I atone for your sin. Constantly, yes, you've messed up, but did I not give you the re-entrance to my house? Some of you messed up this week and you still walk through these doors. Not that this place is anything special and holy, It's not the tabernacle in the wilderness, although it is sanctified by the Lord as the body of Christ. Because God is in the business of taking people who have messed up on Tuesday and restoring them that same day. Remember, the sacrifices were done every day. You didn't have to wait till the Sabbath to make things right with the Lord. You and I shouldn't wait till Sunday to make things right with the Lord, should we? Our right reflection to the world is to say, no, no, I have a relationship with Jesus that I mess up too. Yesterday I said something I shouldn't have said to my wife, or yesterday I did something I shouldn't have done, or I didn't obey God in this area, but you know what? God forgave me that very day, and I didn't have to put it off, and it didn't just add to my sin account, which is what we had before we were saved, right? It would just continue to pile up. But every day we have the opportunity to walk back into the presence of the Lord The sacrifice um, actually would justify the guilty. It would justify the guilty. um, But again, the heart had to be in the right place, too. It had to be an animal offering without blemish that was brought to the tabernacle door. Couldn't bring a blemished offering. We always have to bring a pure heart. Lord, I I come truly repenting, I come truly turning. The offer would then, they would lay their hand upon the head offering, thereby identifying as a substitute for sin. In this way, the sins were transferred to the animal. And with the transfer complete, the sin pollution would be now on the animal and not on the individual. And they could walk out with a clean conscience and a freshness to their walk, that they would be able to rightly represent the Lord in their own house with their wife or with their husband and the children And so we want to also, again, daily, we have entrance to the sacrifice of Christ. He only was sacrificed once. But we need constantly His blood and cleansing in our life. You know, when Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, 26, he writes that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water and the Word. Now when you think about the brazen laver, Right? So this is a big, a big, a big round container set on a stand, much like a big bird bath, but much bigger. And it had, had all the water in there that the, uh, the priests would need to cleanse themselves. By the way, when a priest was sanctified as a priest, that was only done once. They would actually be completely washed right there one time. It's a symbol. Of many many scholars and theologians think that that symbolizes our one-time baptism. You and I, once we believe in Christ, we're baptized once. We don't have to keep being baptized. Every time we have baptism, hey, I need to be baptized again. The priest is baptized one time or washed one time, but the rest of their ministry, they constantly have to rewash their hands and feet. Remember Jesus? What did He do on the night of Passover? He got down and washed what? Their feet. He took a bowl, a round bowl of water, and He washed the feet And the feet would come in the outer court and they would be dusty and the priests would have to continually, before they could go into the holy place, they would have to wash the hands and feet. And Jesus, or Paul speaking of Christ, says that He sanctifies His bride, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the Word. Now the Greek word used here is lutron, which means laver. You think Paul understood the Old Testament? Of course he refers to it a lot. Uh, the laver, he's saying that the Lord himself takes the, the bronze laver and washes the church. And how does he do that with us? In our prayer life, the Word washes. Jesus said, my Word has cleansed and my Word has washed. Well, How does a young man take or cleanse himself? By taking heed to the Word. The washing of the Word is important in our life. We need to allow ourselves to stand in that place where God can cleanse and sanctify us daily by the washing of of the word. Jesus is the one that will take the water from the laver. He takes it from the word. He takes it in prayer when we worship him, when we praise him, and he washes us and cleans us. We actually see the laver up in heaven in Revelation 15.2. I don't know if you knew this, but in Revelation 15.2, we see the saints standing beside the laver. That's a place of, what it means is that in heaven, the laver is a place of absolute holiness, pure water, completely holy, and the saints are able to stand there around it signifying they've been cleansed by it. Isn't that that a beautiful picture? Revelation 15, that's up in heaven. So we know that God brings these things down um, to the earth. And we know that uh, also the priests, because they had to be cleansed before they could go into the holy place. You and I have been made kings and priests by the Lord, haven't we? We have to be cleansed and washed by the Lord before we can continue to go into ministry day after day after day. I cannot stand in the pulpit uncleansed. I have to be cleansed by the Lord, don't I? And so do you as moms and dads. You can't perform the role of parent or spouse without being cleansed by the Lord. It's a ministry. Everything that we've been given is a ministry. We go into Bon Air tonight to speak to the kids there. We need to be cleansed to go in as ministers of reconciliation by the Lord. Let's look uh, briefly at the framework. The framework. If you look at, um, oh by the way, one other thing uh, in verse 8 before we go on. The bronze laver. Again, notice that that bronze laver, which actually you could see your reflection in the water, was made by the mirrors of the women. That they had taken, instead of the things that looked at self-appearance, the very things that they used to think of as self-appearance, God now gave them instead the desire to have God look at us from spiritual appearance. The, un- the immature and unbeliever cares a lot about physical appearance. The mature and growing in the Lord cares much about the inward spiritual appearance. How, Lord, am I reflecting you not am I reflecting GQ or Cosmopolitan or these other things, but how am I reflecting you? How does my spirit reflect you? How does my life reflect you? Let's look at the framework. Uh, we're not going to go through uh, verses nine and, nine through twenty, but uh, you you read that stuff and you're like, I think I saw a lot about hooks and sockets and curtains and sheets and all this other stuff. And a lot of those things, some of them were made with animal skin, some of them were fine linen. We've talked about this before back when we, um, when we looked at this in previous chapters because, again, some of this is repetitive. But think about, the ta- remember, the tabernacle. What was the shape of it? It's this perfect, you know, here it is, it's this rectangular-looking view- um, shape, rectangular shape, and then you have, again, the dimensions of everything as designated by God. Exactly, it must be built thus and so. It has to be this size, this many cubits, everything is detailed by the god there's not a hint of confusion and when you think about how christ designed the church the church is designed by the lord and laid out by the lord to not operate in any way under confusion god is not the author of confusion is he jesus is the head He's the shepherd. He's the pastor. He gave perfect instructions to the apostles. He trained them for three full years and said, this is how you'll build my church. I'll give you my Holy Spirit. These are the things that will uh, be required of the church. These are the things I want you to focus on. We know his marching orders. We know He wants us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. We have His framework of what God considers important. Now I'm here to tell you, many times over the last 2,000 years, the church has the framework all mixed up. Completely jumbled. Things that God thinks are important, the church finds not important at all. Things that the church thinks important, God says not important. Matter of fact, you can't even find them in His dimensions. You can't even find them in His instructions. You can't find them in the Word of God. Think of the instructions like in James. How many churches across the country, how many believers still follow when they, when they get sick, the first thing they think about is, I will call the elders and have them anoint me with oil and pray over me. Happens some, but it's not the first thought. It's just an example. That God says, look, here's my way of doing things. You can do them your own way if you want to. Although he won't let us do our own way forever. Understand that. That's good about the Lord. He eventually will correct. The Lord will tell us, you you have witnessing to non-believers at number seven on your priority list. I have it as number one. Right? As far as outward reaching. Inward, Our number one focus is equipping the saints, what we're doing this morning. Discipling, iron sharpening iron, that we would be useful for the Lord. But the framework of the Lord is so important that He's the one that sets and puts everything in its proper place. He's our priest, He's our king, He's our Savior. Look uh, Look at verse 18, the screen of the gate. The screen of the gate, the thing that you would see at the gate, blue, purple, scarlet. Blue indicating the priestly duties of Christ. Purple, the King of Kings, royalty of Jesus Christ. And scarlet, the spotless Lamb of God, the blood shed. As the sacrifice. Jesus is the blue, the purple, and the scarlet. Then, when you come to the gate, when you come to come enter into the church, Jesus says, unless you look first at me, the author and finisher of your faith, if I am not the first thing you see when you enter into the body of Christ, and that goes for this church and every other church, if Jesus is not magnified and lifted up as the first thing, everything else is wrong and out of place. Jesus has to be first. Hey, when you enter the gate... When you enter into the body of Christ, He has to be the focal point. If something else is the focal point when you walk in, and then, of course, you come past, the, you see the blood, the, uh, the scarlet, the blue and the purple, that's representation of Jesus. Then you come and you see the altar reminding that He's the one that atones. You see it's always Christ. Paul said, I'll preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified above everything else. Yeah, we have many other things that have taken place, or taken the place, and then when you look at the framework of the, um, the tabernacle, how it all works together, all the fittings come together, all the different hooks and the, um, the flexibility. Now, I mean, you understand out there in the wilderness that you would have the windstorms and you would have the dust. And so on the one hand, the framework would be pretty because of the colors and they dyed the different the animal skins and you have the flowing linen and you have all these different... Uh, Elements coming together which are beautiful, much like those of you that are ladies love to do a great job with curtains. God has this beautiful look, but at the same time it was quite functional that it would protect. The outer side was firm, and it would protect against the wind. But it was also very flexible. This was a portable temple. God could move the children of Israel to a new place in life. But guess what? The temple or the the tabernacle would always come with them. It would all, and it would always look the same, and it would always operate the same. And the church should operate the same whether it's in India or China or Georgia or Michigan or anywhere else on earth, shouldn't it? Anywhere you go, the fitting should look the same. Now, God may have different people, but again, there's only one charter for the church. And we don't have time to go into that. I'm, what I'm saying is the framework here, God sets up a framework, and we operate within it. We don't rewrite the blueprint. And there, let me tell you, there are many in the church, pastors and leaders that are trying to rewrite the blueprint for the church. You know, it, it might accomplish some bit of notoriety, celebrity, but it won't accomplish what God intends, and that's for people to still be convicted of sin and still look to the mercy of the Lord. If that's not what any if that's not what we do, if people don't come to the place they say, I know I need the mercy of God, then we're missing something in the framework of the church, aren't we? If they say, no, no, all I want is, I just want to feel good. I just want to feel great. That's not what the tabernacle was there for. It was help people to be able to come back into harmony and relationship with God, not just feel great about what they're doing. But the structure and design perfectly given by God and it's a reminder to us that his word is a lamp under our feet and a light under our path we must follow exactly to the letter what he says we're going to make mistakes but we don't make mistakes on purpose we seek to follow the instructions of the Lord I love that all these elements all these um and again if you go back and read the bronze the hooks the hangings, the cubits, the pillars, all these different elements working together in such a beautiful structure. I I thought of this, I don't know who the author is, author unknown, it said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed people can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. God takes a group of various pieces and parts like us and He fits us together to make a perfect, representation of the temple or the tabernacle or the body of christ here on this earth a bunch of ordinary paul talked about it. not many of you are wise or all that important in the world most of the church was not rich or wealthy most of the early church again they were the nobodies and yet they are the ones that will rightly represent most of the temple elements again uh it that, that tabernacle not the temple, the temple will come later, but the tabernacle wasn't near as impressive as coming upon it as, let's say, a pyramid in Egypt. But it was far more glorious, wasn't it? Last, uh, last thing as we close, the materials for the tabernacle. At verse 21, this is the inventory. You know, you look at all the different elements that were brought as far as the gold and the precious metals. The present-day value of the materials used in the temple would total more than $13 million dollars. 13 million, and where are the children? A bunch of slaves get 13 million. Now, we know that they were given a lot of treasure just before they left the, left the uh, land of Egypt. Their combined weight would be 19,000 pounds. It was quite a project uh, for Moses to manage, although he delegated uh, really well, and he had many people there working for him. But we look at this, this faithfulness of the people. Uh, they didn't start out faithful. Uh, they started out complaining they started out uh, again when Moses went up the first time. They built a gold. They built uh, the abomination opposite of the tabernacle. They built a golden calf. But ultimately, their hearts were repentant, and they instead became very giving of themselves, their time, their talent, and yes, their wallet. All of that came back to the Lord, um, and they said, "Lord, it all belongs to you." I told the church on Wednesday night um, again. God wants all of these elements from us he does want our time he every minute of the every minute of the week belongs to him he wants all the abilities if you have an ability he gave it to you he can take it away as easy as he gave it to you if you have a talent a spiritual gift he wants all this and yes even the wallet jesus spoke more about money than he did heaven and hell combined hard to believe huh about one in every seven verses are about money and his earthly miniature you'll see when we get in the book of luke you'll be like wow i I, Didn't realize that. Why? Because the things we try and hold on hinder us from being yielded servants of the Lord. Whatever it is. For some people, it has nothing to do with money. They have no problem giving that back to the Lord. Some people just won't give God their time. I'll write you a check, but I ain't gonna I, I do not have time for this. Other people, again, will give one thing and not another. God says, All three yielded to me, and I'll use it in a beautiful way, and I'll build up my tabernacle, that being the living church that we looked at there in Hebrews chapter 13. But everything the people g- gave back to God was given to them by who? Every single thing they gave God, their talent, Basiel, he, he was incredibly gifted in metalworking. Who gave him that ability? God. He could have, instead of, he, instead of building elements like the lampstand, he could have built idols. Right? Whatever ability you have, God can say, you can either build idols with it or you can work for me. You have one of two. Basiel could have, you know how rich he could have gotten building idols for Egyptians and Assyrians and all the other people in his day? He was top of his craft. And instead, he said, Lord, I give it to you. I give my time to you. I give my ability to you. Many of you have uh, gifts and abilities that God Uh, Has given you. He wants you to use them for Him. When the world sees us, by the way, when the world knows you, men, women, children, when the world sees you and I give our lives and our time and our talent and our treasure, Lord, it's impossible for them to ignore. Don't think they don't notice. They notice. They notice. They watch our lives. You don't know how many times I have run into people that have told me how closely they've watched another christian cuz they'll, they'll they'll say some things to a pastor that they've been itching to say for a long time some of y'all's kind like I'm responsible for every christian they've ever run into right some of y'all's kind and they'll unload on me i've seen them do this you say you think they're really holy i've heard them cuss at work and do this and do that and they they don't really, I spend more time helping Habitat for Humanity than they do the church And they notice. But when the world is seeing us rightly represent the Lord, they notice that too. They might try and act like they don't notice, or they might kind of, but really they notice. And sometimes those are the very ones that eventually come to the Lord and God ends up bringing them into the same life of faithful service as He's done with us. Every resource here, every resource that was needed for the tabernacle, God provided it. I sometimes worry about resources, my own, the church, and God will remind me, don't worry, I own it all, right? I own it all. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. They're equal to God, right? It's equal for Him to give or take. He owns it all. He owns both ends of the spectrum, everything you have, every breath you take. Sometimes you can worry about your health. The health you have, the Lord can give you health. He can unprotect the hell. Everything we have, say, Lord, you already have it all, so I yield it all. Recognizing that really all you're doing is coming to reality and your senses and saying, Lord, you already own it all. What, who am I fooling here? I can't really own time. From the time we started, how many of you have been able to hold on to time? You're saying, I wish this time would end. It's almost ready to end. James one twenty seven. Think about this. Pure and undefiled religion before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their time of trouble, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What does that tell us? The world will see both your true purity, unspottedness. They'll, they'll know when you're unspotted. They, they Don't be misled if they call you a hypocrite. They know who really is walking with the Lord. Despite our imperfections, they still see it. And then when they see that your desire is, it's for widows and orphans. In other words, you have a desire for things that are not, it's not about you. The world no longer revolves around you. More, I care more that the kids at this place get saved than I care about my personal wants and desires. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul said, my whole life, all my gifts, all my talent, all my abilities will rightly represent the Lord in one way, if I pour them out for him. And the Lord is saying to the children of Israel, as you build this tabernacle, as you yield whatever I've given you, as you look to the things that I've set up as my instructions, as you follow them in obedience, all of these things will cause you to look to the mercy of the Lord, and God himself will continue to revive us, refresh us, remind us, restore us, and keep us in rightly reflecting his righteousness. Let's close in prayer.